It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Monday morning, the 17th of January. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. As a country, we feel sad, shocked, repulsed, guilty, neglectful and powerless and angry because we want justice for Ashling Murphy and we want to end violence against women. It, it is devastating and, and I share people's sense of shock and anger and frustration um, at what has happened as Minister for Justice, you know, in, in my official capacity and role, um, what's important now is that absolutely everything that can be done will be done. And the Gardaí and the Commissioner in particular has assured me that that is the case. Every resource that is required here will be made and is being made available um, to the local team in Tullamore. That's the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, speaking to me on Friday's programme. Let's st- speak to Stephen Breen, Crime Editor with the Irish Sun today. Good morning, Stephen, and thanks indeed morning, uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. What, what, what's the latest in terms of uh, this murder investigation? It's a huge investigation, Michael, undertaken by uh, detectives in Tullamore, backed up by their colleagues in the National Bureau of Criminal Investigation. Since uh, the horrific events of last Wednesday, uh, the Garda investigation uh, has made significant progress, according to the the Garda press office. That would include gathering CCTV evidence, DNA evidence, witness statements, and uh, searching two properties, one in Dublin, one in Tullamore. So it is very active. Uh, Guards are working around the clock, you know, to try and um, bring this uh, the person who did this uh, to justice. The latest phase is that there is a person of interest who the Gardaí are very keen to speak to. That individual is currently being treated at a hospital in Dublin. He presented himself to the hospital on Thursday night as a relative brought him there. The individual had claimed that he had been stabbed and attacked in West Dublin and he had suffered various facial and hand injuries. But there's also a suspicion that perhaps some of those injuries are self-inflicted. So that person remains in hospital. The Guardi haven't interviewed him yet, but uh, they are very keen to do that, and hopefully that can happen today. Okay, and it was the hospital staff, was it, who, who brought this individual and his injuries to the attention of the Guardi? Yeah, obviously, when an individual presents themselves at hospital with uh, injuries and maintains that they were the victim of an assault, then that the hospital uh, normally would, would process or would, would contact the authorities, namely the guardies. So the guards were called, but prior to that, 
uh, the individual um, who was, was brought to the hospital by a relative. That relative also called into a guard station in North Dublin and maintained that his relative from Tullamore had just been dropped off at uh, the hospital in Dublin. So that uh, that relative as well was also working with the Guardian, also made a statement to them too. Guards also searched two properties uh, linked to this person of interest, one outside Tullamore and the other in uh, South Dublin as well, and also spoken to members of his family um, who uh, have connections to both properties. So uh, the, the guards are really... Um, a whole process of trying to interview anyone connected to this individual and, and putting together the, the, the jigsaw that they're trying to bring someone before the court in relation to this crime. It appears that on the face of things, does it, Stephen, uh, that uh, Ashling uh, fought for her life, uh, that there was a struggle between the two. It, it, it appears or it was revealed over the weekend that Ashling was alive when paramedics came to her. Yeah, uh, Ashling is a very uh, brave young woman. There's no question about that. Uh, the, the belief among the, the Guardian investigating this awful crime is that she did put up a brave fight for life. Um, it was a ferocious and barbaric attack that she sustained. But crucially, uh, during the, the course of this uh, attack, and because she did try to defend herself uh, and put up a brave fight for life, that you know she may have um, obtained some of the DNA from this individual and obviously the, the party have also seized DNA from the mountain bike um, which was recovered close to the scene hmm. after the incident and that DNA will then be matched to the person of interest and, and that is the, the, the line the guards are going on in the hope that the, the DNA that even Ashling would have got from her attacker and also if the, if the attacker as well had Ashling's DNA or any blood you know, on his clothing or, or on his uh, person, then that could be analysed as well, and mm. hopefully a, a match is made there. So, and there could be skin, for example, under Ashling's fingernails. Yeah, of, of mm. course, that's important too, and that'll form part of the overall guard inquiry. But the, the, there's no question about it that she did put up a brave fight. But the, the, this incident and this attack was just so ferocious and violent that unfortunately she lost her life. Mm. It's dreadful to think that it's a good thing that a woman would fight off her attacker or her killer, as is the case in Ashling's story, uh, because that may result in justice and uh, that attacker being brought to justice. Yeah, I think it's, it's extremely important when, you know, in, even though Ashling has lost her life, um, she, she may have contributed to the person who did this, uh, you know, spending a, a long time in prison. Uh, and that is the, the hope that the Guardi have. So uh, DNA obviously will be crucial and uh, witness statements. And they've already made huge progress. And I think it's worth pointing out, Michael, that the evidence that the guards gathered initially when they had arrested the first suspect who's mm. been completely exonerated, that evidence will now be used against the, the, the latest person of interest or, and, and the latest, or the person that, that killed Ashley. So hopefully that evidence can be used in a positive way mm. to bring the real perpetrator to justice. Well, the Gardaí haven't uh, managed uh, to speak uh, to this person of interest yet because he's in hospital because of uh, those injuries that you spoke about. I suppose uh, everybody will be hoping that whoever killed Ashling will admit to doing it so that it can stop uh, the pain that will continue otherwise for her family. Absolutely. I mean, obviously, if this person uh, is interviewed by the Guardi, they, they haven't been uh, given the, the permission yet to speak to the, the, the individual, the latest person of interest. So if they did make admissions of their guilt in this heinous crime, then, then that would obviously bring some sort of comfort to 
um, asking the family, but obviously still have to be a court process as well for this man uh, to go to prison. But uh, equally, if they don't make any admissions, it, it comes down to the guardie, hopefully, you know, with their, their evidence that they've gathered, that it's enough, you know, that can be presented to the court, presented to the DPP, and hopefully that's enough for someone to be brought to justice for this crime. And DNA, uh, the great hope or second hope after an admission. Uh, But they're also looking at uh, telephones as well, Stephen. Yeah, telephones and also cars. Obviously, they want to build up a profile of the person who would, you know, have it in themselves to, you know, uh, go to an isolated area where where people like walking and exercising and just, you know, have the compulsion to attack a young woman. As she's just out exercising. So, what 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 sort of motivates some person to do this? So, that would be important. Examining the phones, but also with the phones, you can have cell site analysis, where you have someone who's it can maybe identify their location at the time of actually uh, was attacked. So, that would be important as well. And, and the guards will just be looking at every strand of evidence that can boost their case and can be presented to the DPP in the hope that the charge can be brought. So, it's not just DNA. It will be CCTV. It will be witness statements and even indeed the dedicated phone line that the Guardi set up you know, people are already uh, coming forward and, and making statements to the Guardi a lot of people have come forward to identify uh, the person they believe owns the bike which the Guardi made an appeal over so every strand of the investigation is very important Okay, uh, as we all know, uh, a man uh, was arrested previously. Uh, he's been ruled out of the Garda investigation. He had been identified on social media. There's a lot of concern about that, uh, Stephen, and it is a problem of the age we live in. But uh, since then, that man has identified himself uh, speaking uh, to journalists. He, he has. Uh, he, he has. Come, I spoke to his solicitor last week, and the solicitor's spoken about how his client had been traumatised, how he was living in fear. Once he was released on Thursday night, and that release started before, at the same time, the Guardian issued a press release saying this individual was no longer being treated as a suspect, and he had been completely eliminated from the Guardian inquiry, so he was totally innocent. And even the, his solicitor told me that during the course of his interviews with the Guardian, he maintained at all times that he was completely innocent. He had nothing to do with this here. He was in a different area at the time. And the Guardi were able to establish by their um, evidence gathering process that indeed he was totally innocent. And he did speak um, over the weekend about what he'd been through, what his uh, family had been through as well. And, and uh, But at the same time, he was trying to say that he also showed compassion for Ashley's family and uh, trying to give them some comfort as well by expressing his condolences. But he, he did maintain that his life had been ruined by this. And He's just trying to put it back together again because when he was arrested, obviously he wouldn't have known about the, the, the thousands of messages that were placed on social media identifying him, identifying uh, where he lived. So it was a very hard time for him and his family. And that's why he had to go and stay in a hotel when he was released because he still has that fear that people mightn't believe him, that he was involved in this, even though the guards have completely exonerated him. Mm. Yeah, unfortunate. How did the guards feel about that? I'm sure they're they're upset about it. Obviously, mm. at the time, um, they, they had been given a description of an individual, uh, the, the, the two women who saw mm. the attack taking place, but those two women were actually at the other side of, of the canal, um, and there was someone that this individual would have been known to Gardaí in the area. So 
uh, the guards uh, were acting on that information, and then, but uh, the, uh, this person, he was arrested. First of all, couldn't believe it when this was happening. He, he thought it was uh, some kind of sick prank mm. when they called to his sister's house. And uh, but the thing as the investigation went on, as he continually been interviewed, I think the guards soon realised that it couldn't have been him. And when the DNA came back, uh, which didn't match his, then that's when they knew uh, they, they were dealing with an innocent man. And he was released. And he also, mm. solicitor also said to me that um, he, he was, the guards had treated him well and he, he felt, you know, there was no real pressure on him, but he just was concerned for his family. Okay. The eyewitness accounts those two women can give will continue to be very important, I take it. Uh, of course, yes. They, they were the, the, the two local women who, who came upon this uh, disturbed the individual who was uh, attacking Ashley. So that they were no doubt form part of the overall garden inquiry as well and um, their statements will be very important too and mm. you know and what they remember from the awful events of, of five days ago I, and that's just another um, statement that the guards have gathered as well as you know people who were in Tullamore before the event took place other people who were out walking and indeed the days before as well if people say anything suspicious but the, the reassuring thing is that people are coming forward but the guard are still at pains to point out they'd still like other people to come forward with information if they haven't yet done so. It's rare that a single incident captures uh, the minds of everybody in uh, the country but it certainly has uh, done this time around and indeed beyond as we've been seeing from vigils uh, in uh, different cities around uh, the world. Everybody's thinking about it, everybody's talking about it, everybody is very annoyed and shocked, as uh, we said at uh, the start, and uh, it's uh, made the conversation about violence uh, against women uh, a very, very pertinent uh, conversation at this stage. Uh, but there's a great sense of sadness, uh, no doubt, uh, across the country. And I'm sure everybody will pause for thought tomorrow, Stephen, uh, when Ashling is laid to rest. It's going to be a very, very sad day, I imagine, in Tullamore. Absolutely. I think it, it's like the last five days have shown that there's also a great sense of solidarity, not just among the people in Ireland, but we've seen schedules uh, in Belgium in the UK as well. Uh, people are, are rightly horrified that a young woman who had her whole life in front of her is out for a run, something that we do all the time. Like when I go out for a run, I don't think, God, am I going to be attacked? But I think it's brought into the public domain, once again, the dangers and the fear that women feel. I think, you know, society collectively has to stand up and, and take note of this. You know, I, if my wife was out for a walk at night, you, you always tell them to be careful and or if I am out, text me when you're home. No, we shouldn't have to have to live like that. And just before Christmas, I interviewed uh, the, the mother of Nadine Knott, uh, a young mother of one who was brutally murdered uh, two years ago. Mm. And I, I, I spoke to other victims' families as well, just, just recently over the, over the weekend. They've lost a daughter or a sister, and they're talking about, when is this going to stop? Mm. You know, what, what is going to be done about it? Because here we have another young woman who's brutally murdered, 200 and 66 since 1996 women have been killed so uh, I think it's it, maybe this is a watershed moment and it's certainly one of the most horrific cases I've covered in my career as a journalist where a young woman can just go out for a run mm. and, and be abducted and, and we look at it but it's happened all over the country where women have been attacked in, in a brutal way women who are out there like Lisa Dorian Sandra Collins these people these women are still missing yeah. They've never been returned to their loved ones for a Christian burial. It's just horrendous. And there's a lot of talk about culture and mindset, and rightly so. And I don't know if it was a joke, uh, but one of uh, the most repulsive things uh, that I've heard of uh, mm -hmm. since uh, the murder of Ashley was how a Zoom conversation was hacked by a man 
uh, uh, it was attended by women only uh, who mm-hmm. couldn't go to vigils uh, and uh, apparently this man was masturbating on screen. Yeah, I, I saw that as well on, on Twitter. I don't know the full details of it, but if, if this is correct, I mean, what sort of mindset uh, you know, pr- you know, prompts someone, an individual, to behave in this manner, to have total you know, contempt for his fellow citizens and to engage in that behaviour? It's just shocking. And if this has happened, then I, I'm hoping the guards have a look at it and can do something about it. We saw vigils as well um, in, in Cork where you had these um, elderly men, you know, uh, make, saying the rosary to Our Lady, so that they're paying homage to Our Lady, a woman, and yet here they are um, disrupting a vigil that was taking place for a young woman who was murdered. And that's not Christianity. I, I don't know. I, I think it's just shocking. Mm. I don't know why men would behave in such a, a terrible fashion. That's disgusting. Stephen, we live there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us on Thank the programme today. That's Stephen Brain, the crime editor with The Irish Sun. Michael Reed on LMFM. And we also spoke to the Minister for Justice on Friday about a scheme that will open up at the end of this month and it will be of particular importance to what is estimated to be in around 20,000 people who are living here illegally. Uh, There's going to be an opportunity for them to avail of an amnesty which will allow them to live here uh, as citizens in this country. Before Christmas I spoke to about the undocumented scheme which was published um, and launched at the beginning of December. This is a scheme that will allow people who have been living in an undocumented way, so those who have either arrived without documentation or who have fallen out of um, status in this country, that they will now have an opportunity to regularise their status. Uh, You know, I said to you before, these are people living in our community, working, their children are in our schools, uh, and we want to ensure that they are treated in the same way uh, as those Irish undocumented in other countries the, the way that we would like them to be treated. The scheme, as promised, will open at the end of this month, the 31st of January. Uh, and for people who want to understand and know the type of documentation, uh, the eligibility details that they, they need and, and the, the information that they require to apply is, is available to them on justice.ie. And I would encourage, obviously, anybody to look at that and, and to start to gather the information. This will be open for six months, but it is a closed scheme after that six months. Uh, so it's courage people to come forward. Minister Helen McEntee, let's uh, talk to Brian Cloran, uh, who is uh, the Chief Executive of uh, the Irish Immigrant Council of Ireland. Brian, good morning to you. Thanks uh, for joining us. So there's a, an opportunity here for uh, a lot of people uh, to set things straight. Uh, is there any suspicion surrounding this scheme? Um, I think it's been very transparent from the Department of Justice as regards their approach. Um, I think for anyone who's in a position of being undocumented, engaging with the state in any way, you know, will involve some suspicion. They'll be cautious. Uh, You know, through our work at the Immigrant Council over the last 20 years, we've worked with people who are undocumented and essentially, you know, they will become undocumented a lot of the time because they've fallen out of the system, as the Minister just said, they're in that piece. Um, And then to get back into the system, they essentially have to put themselves at the mercy of the Department to justice and say, here's what happened, can you fix my situation? There's often not a legal right to get back into the system. Sometimes there is, most of the time there isn't. Um, so I think people will be cautious, but the good the good part about this is, is that there's been a, a huge amount of engagement from the Department of Justice, not just with civil society organisations like ourselves, but with the big campaign, Justice for the Undocumented, who are undocumented people themselves, um, about getting this scheme in place. So there's been a good lot of engagement, we know the parameters of it, um, and hopefully, as you say, it will it 
able to sort the situation out for a huge amount of people. But there will be some who probably won't go for it because they're just cautious about what happens or, or they think they won't qualify and therefore will remain in the shadows. Mm. Well, you won't qualify if you came here last month or last year for that matter. You have to have been here for uh, at least four years. Uh, I think it's less if you have children. That's a, a three-year period. Uh, but if you do qualify uh, under that criteria, have you anything to be afraid of? Would you encourage people to go forward and apply for this amnesty? Well, the first step definitely is getting information, you know, so go to civil society organisations like ourselves, talk to citizens information centres, everything is totally confidential, you can talk to somebody about whether or not you qualify, so getting information, there's no risk at all involved in that. But then if you're in a situation where you think, okay, I I tick all the boxes for this, um, going forward to make an application is, in in our view, you know, a, a hugely important thing to do, because it is the opportunity, as the Minister said, to get back into the system. This isn't something that they're going to keep rolling on. This isn't going to probably happen again next year or the year after, um, even though there's an argument that, that maybe it should be done periodically. Um, but um, it is the opportunity to fix things and get back into the system. Um, and for those then that, that meet the parameters, it's a really good opportunity to get a legal immigration status again in the state and then work towards citizenship in the future if that's what they want. OK, as the Minister said, it'll be open for six months from the end of this month up to the end of uh, July. Uh, Will it be too expensive for some people to uh, apply for? There's been a conversation back and forth with the department about this, definitely. You know, we, we've always been of the position that in, in a lot of immigration applications, there should be there should be parameters for a fee waiver, you know, for people who are in extreme destitution that can't can't manage it, can't, can't get the finances together to do it. Um, there isn't a parameter for doing that in this current scheme, so there will be some difficulty, I'm sure, for some people in, in managing the finances to make the application. I know some civil society groups have started fundraising for it to get, you know, GoFundMe's going so that the people can contribute towards the cost of applications for those that don't have the finances to do it. Um, it's kind of, you know, it's one of those situations where you think, you know, is there really a need for the BFE for this? You know, for trying to use this as an opportunity to get people back in the system. You know, there's going to be a, an administrative cost, yes, but, you know, people paying a fee is not going to cover that cost. Um, but at the end of the day, there is a fee. Um, but there is, if people have difficulty in getting that fee, um, look on line at civil society organisations, NASC, a group down in Cork, are fundraising around the fee for people. Um, If if people are in extreme situations where they can't afford it, there might be options for them getting some support around that. Okay, and you don't need the money today or tomorrow uh, by the end of July, uh, perhaps uh, because uh, that's uh, when the scheme closes and you'll have to have made an application by then. So it's €500 for a single person, 700 for a family. And then if you're successful, you pay again another 300 is it? Yeah, the registration cards with the Gardaí, so anyone who's outside from outside the EU has to register with the Gardaí and then you pay you pay for that card. So that's 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 there's an administrative fee on that card as well. So the costs have mounted up definitely and you know there would be concern obviously some people who are undocumented obviously if you know they're in employment they're not in employment in, in a regular way they, they may be in a very difficult circumstances and there may be many people who are in situations of exploitation as well because they've been so vulnerable as a result of you know not having a, a legal right to be in the state so as this scheme progresses groups like ourselves will be working with people there will be things that come up during that scheme that we will bring to the attention of the department to the 
minister and say, listen, you know, this part of it's not working or there's, there needs to be some exceptions to this parameter. Um, and we'll go back and forth with the department about that and hopefully communicate with them any difficulties that arise. OK, if you do apply to the scheme and you're successful uh, and you, ha- you come under the amnesty as uh, such uh, uh, and you're allowed to stay legally in the country, is that it? Is it a, a lifetime decision? It's uh, a renewable form of status. So any, any immigration permission that's given um, in the vast majority of circumstances, it's not absolute. It's not forever. It's for a period of time. Um, I think in this case, they've gone with two years and then three, if I'm not mistaken, but I'd have to check that. So an initial status of two and then a follow-up period of three. Um that will be, you know, renewed at the discretion of the minister. So, for example, if somebody in that time, uh, some information comes to the attention of the department that would give them a reason not to renew it, mm. or if somebody becomes a threat to the public or some mm. national security issue or anything. Or involved you know, in serious crime, yeah. Mm. Don't frequently mm. arise, but occasionally can arise. If that happens, that could put the person's status in jeopardy. Um, but generally, for the vast majority of people, this is a status that they'll be able to maintain. And as I said, build up the five years of legal residence then that people need before they can apply to become an Irish citizen. Okay, Brian, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Brian Cloran, Chief Executive Officer of the Irish Immigrant Council. Now, let's... uh talk a little bit more about Ashling Murphy. We're going to hear from a lot of local people in the second hour of today's programme. If you were at the vigils, you may have been speaking to our reporters uh, across uh, the weekend. Uh, I don't know if you uh, saw the statement uh, from the President, Michael D. Higgins. Uh, of course, he expressed his sympathy to Ashling's family. Uh, and President Higgins also said it is of crucial importance that we take this opportunity as so many people have already done in this short time since Ashling's death, to reflect on what needs to be done to eliminate violence against women in all its aspects from our society and how that work can neither be postponed nor begin too early. May I suggest to all our people to reflect on all of our actions and attitudes and indeed those we may have been leaving unchallenged amongst those whom we know and do all we can to ensure that the society we live in is one where all of our citizens are free to live their lives, participate fully in an atmosphere that is unencumbered by risks to their safety. Let us respond to this moment of Ashling's death by committing to the creation of a kinder, more compassionate and empathetic society for all, one that will seek to eliminate all threats of violence against any of our citizens and commit in particular to bringing an end at home and abroad to violence against women in any of its forms. As I say, that's part of uh, the statement uh, that uh, President Michael D. Higgins Uh, published on Friday. There's been uh, a lot of opinion in uh, the papers. We'd love to hear your opinions, by the way. Uh, I suppose we've all had uh, a bit of time for this uh, to sink in, uh, but some very strong things written uh, in some of uh, the papers. Going to try and bring some of them to you through the programme today. Part of an article from Martina Devlin in uh, the Irish Independent. Rule number one for women on how to avoid being attacked, raped or murdered. Never leave home. Not to work, not to exercise, not to shop and definitely not to socialise. Unfortunately, domestic violence means staying indoors won't guarantee absolute safety, but it does offer a certain level of protection. She also says 
We hear a great deal about violence against women as something random, attributable to bad luck, a wrong place, wrong time situation, but there's nothing random about the gender against whom it is directed and nothing random about who is perpetrating it. A pattern of violence by men against women is unmistakable. It has been happening forever, not least because society continues to tolerate it. How many more broken limbs and stolen lives before action is taken? Uh, she asks in her play, in her piece uh, from uh, the Irish Independent. Uh, might just bring in another uh, part of a, an article, one written by Tanya Sweeney in uh, the same paper. Uh, she says, just uh, as he does, most nights my husband pulled on his coat and scarf to get out into the chilly January night and walk the day out of himself. I felt a, a bit envious and a few days ago I told him as much. You do realise that you, as a man, have a very specific privilege in that you can walk at night on your own and it's not a big deal, I said. I'd love to go for a walk right now, but my outdoor life basically ends at sundown. I'd be far too scared to go outside after dark. You mean you wouldn't even feel safe on the main road there, he asked, a little disbelievingly. Not even, I replied, and now I'm not sure I'd feel safe in broad daylight either. My husband is a fairly progressive man. He's a feminist in many of the right ways, but even he doesn't fully understand the idea that women could feel so vulnerable on the streets and that we have a curfew. He has certainly heard about this street-based violence in some abstract way, but he doesn't fully understand how when women go on first dates, they tell a friend where they're going and who they're going with. How we appease and smile nervously when a random man accosts us in public, terrified that things might escalate. How we walk with our keys poking out of our fists. Why we sit in the first carriage or close to the bus driver. How we have all at some point said a silent prayer that we will get to our doorstep and how lucky we feel when we do. Uh, Tanya Sweeney goes on to say, I don't want to read any helpful hints about staying safe on the streets anymore. I don't want to hear about how it's wise for a woman being assaulted to shout fire instead of rape and why that might give you a better chance of a passerby helping. I don't need reminding of the hand gesture that lets others know I'm in danger. Today is not the day for that. We're so bone tired of it. How long will it go on for? The way forward starts with the men. It starts with dismantling the idea that women are somehow fair game. It needs to begin with a tacit understanding of why we women place ourselves under curfew every day. We need men to be as invested in the idea that these instances of street-based violence are sickening visceral gut punch as much as we women are. We need men as allies. We can't do this alone because Lord knows we've shouted it from the rooftops for years. We need male allies to call men out on their casual misogyny, their sexism, their attitude. Not every man who ever said, nice tits love, go on to assault or kill, of course, but calling out the creeps on their insidious behaviour, letting them know it won't be tolerated is a good start. That's a part of uh, that article from uh, Tanya Sweeney in uh, the Irish Independent next week. Uh, and I might even read some more of that for you. But uh, we've a lot of opinions along those lines that we're going to try and share with you today and over the coming days. And of course, we'd like your opinions, as always, if you'd like to get in touch with us too. 
Now, the mandate uh, trade union is uh, calling on major retail employers and they've also written to the Minister for Health to support in making free antigen tests available to people working in retail, hospitality and uh, the licensed trade industries. Jonathan Hogan is Assistant General Secretary with Mandate and on the line. Good morning, Jonathan. Thanks for joining us. I'd say a year ago or so, none of us really knew what an antigen test was. Uh, Now many people are are doing several of them uh, every week and particularly the people you represent, I take it. We are, Michael, and uh, one of the the things we've uh, realised over the last couple of months, um, particularly since the numbers went up, is that there's more and more retail workers now uh, using antigen testing proactively uh, to protect themselves uh, and their families, their loved ones, the the ones they live with, Um, and indeed then the customers. Um, So really given the announcement by Cabinet uh, over the last uh, week or so in relation to the greater use of antigen testing, uh, as opposed to kind of just simply PCR testing. Uh, we believe there's a greater need to provide these, make provisions you know, for the, the, the supply of these antigen testing in, in the workplace, particularly in retail, hospitality, the licensed trade, customer-facing kind of uh, operation uh, where people are exposed, I suppose, and more vulnerable. That's, that's really our ask, you know? Mm, yeah, because they're expensive, uh, especially when you're doing so many of them. Indeed, and uh, you know, at the moment now, there, there, there probably are employers out there uh, who we've uh, wrote it and who we work with, uh, probably supplying antigen testing kind of on an ad hoc in a, in a limited way. Uh, but what we are asking for is uh, the, the availability, the, the free availability of antigen testing, just to encourage, I suppose, the reduction in the transmission uh, around the workplace and to provide um, uh, the, the, the employees, the workers, the members we represent with the greatest prote- protections possible, you know. And uh, we've also asked for the, the, the provision of uh, higher-grade masks as well because mm. the HSE on, on uh, Friday have upgraded and, and changed their uh, their uh, policy on, on, uh, on mask wearing. And, uh, I mean, their advice in terms of even cloth masks is that, OK, uh, you know, um, they, they serve their, their purpose mm. and, and they're, they're useful in the absence of higher-grade masks but we're talking about workplaces here. Yeah. Uh, we're not talking about, uh, you know, fashion shows. And really, at this stage, we want to make sure that the, the people that serve you and I in those uh, shops, uh, in the restaurants, in the in the bars, uh, where people can go out and enjoy themselves, mm. are protected. Uh, yeah, and that's when it gets expensive, when you get into the good masks, uh, because uh, you're probably better off wearing a cloth mask than not at all. Uh, but in reality, it seems they give very little protection. You need these high-grade quality medical masks. The medical masks, yeah, and then these other new kind of high-grade the respiratory masks are, are the ones now that the HSE seem to be kind of advising the use of, you know, mm. in, crow- in crowded places. And, you know, uh, what's a crowded place, you know? Uh, you know, n- no one seems to know, and, and we, we, we really don't have a definition of what a crowded place is. Uh, you might say, you might think that a small shop with five or six people in it is a crowded place, um, or you might walk into a, a larger outlet uh, with four, 500 customers and, um, and workers in it, and that could be a crowded place. But a crowded place uh, are workplaces as far as we're concerned, you know, and uh, particularly retail shops. Uh, licensed premises, mm. you know, uh, more so where you have a number of people kind of, you might be sitting down, you might be socially distanced, distancing, but collectively together, uh, the cumulative effect 
is that people uh, could be more vulnerable. I don't know. Mm. I'm not a medical expert either, Michael, you know. Oh, well, I think we've all become armchair experts in this sense. Uh, and I think a lot of us know that uh, you need to, to uh, invest in good masks. They will last longer, uh, but they the masks that will give you real protection. But when you add all of that up uh, between the antigen tests and paying out for masks, uh, I suppose uh, you'd be expecting people needing to come up with 10 or 20 euro a, a week in order to do what everybody hopes they're doing. Well, that's it, and that's why we're calling on the government. Uh, and I know um, a number of months ago when the government were considering even subsidising the antigen tests themselves at that stage, you know, and, um, I mean, in terms of, uh, you know, the, the, the free availability of these things, the masks and stuff like that, I mean, that's something something that the government could agree with uh, the employers in relation to the subsidisation of, of, of the costs associated with these but for the workers themselves that are subjected and, and, and uh, to these workplaces, they work, they operate these uh, workplaces. It's their job at the end of the day. Uh, they should be, uh, they shouldn't have to bear the cost of uh, those protections, you know. And, okay. Um, so that, that's our call, Michael. Okay, very good, Jonathan. Thank you indeed. Thanks, Thanks very much for joining us. Jonathan Hogan, Assistant General Secretary for the Mandate Trade Union. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Now, thanks uh, to David Toomey in Drogheda, who says he was reading uh, an article over the weekend uh, that legislation might be passed in America that private health insurers are obliged to offer benefits towards the cost of antigen tests. And he's wondering if uh, that could be an option here. Interesting thought, David. Thanks uh, for that. Would be a benefit, I'm sure, to some, possibly not to others. Uh, Claire in touch saying, do you know when the government will be giving households the 100 euro off their ESB bill. I thought it was in January. If you could shed some light uh, on this, it would be great help. Uh, thanks, Claire, for that. I haven't actually seen the details of it, but what I understand will happen is that when you get your bill for the electricity that you use in January, uh, that there will be 100 knocked off it by your supplier, the utility company, uh, and that will have come to them from the government uh, so that there's nothing to do except pay your bill, which will be €100 euro uh, less than it would have been otherwise. It's not that you're going to be given €100 euro, uh, and you may still find that the bill is very expensive because I think we're all expecting that the bills will increase so the €100 euro may not offset the increases but I think the hope is that they'll help. Uh, somebody else in uh, touch with us uh, saying this is uh, the second amnesty for illegal immigrants and seems to think uh, that there's uh, something PC about thinking that it's a good thing. Kay, by the way, we got your message uh, but uh, uh, I'm not sure if uh, you've realised uh, that the person who was originally arrested uh, for the murder of Ashley murder uh, of Ashley Murphy was released and has been eliminated from the Garda investigation. Uh, they are certain he had nothing to do with it, and uh, I think that probably answers some of uh, the concerns that uh, you expressed in your message. I, I want to go back uh, to read a little bit more from that article from Tanya Sweeney. Uh, we read some of it earlier, uh, but uh, she made some very pertinent points. Uh, I think uh, which will resonate with a lot of the women listening to us in particular uh, because she says we need to not sweep the rumours the gossip about a man's violent tendencies or how he is when he's drunk into a corner we probably don't realise we do it but we do we need to stop referring to men who have committed an act of violence as pillars of the community as though this act of violence is nothing but a blot on an otherwise impeccable character sheet we need men to understand the cold shard of vulnerability that every woman carries with them in public because every single last one of us has a story of harassment, of violation, of compromise. We need men to not give men
men like Sarah Everard's murderer, Wayne Cousins, a nickname like The Rapist. We need that to not be okay. If you see a man being handsy, he's not just being a bloke doing blokey things. Don't jump on Twitter and bandy about your not all men hashtag. It hasn't been helpful for years and it's certainly not helpful right now. I'm not sure I fully believe this, but talking to men about violence, chauvinism and aggression could work. How could you reason with a monster? What can societal conditioning and conversations around toxic masculinity ever really do for someone with the murder and violence in their heart? The truth is we need to start educating all men about microaggressions and chauvinism. We need to get men to own their own behaviours and know why or how change is required if it is. Everyone from the colleague to the justice system needs to stop putting acts of violence against women down to a host of other factors that have nothing to do with the victim. He's always been a bit weird. He was drinking, he got angry, he was pushed and so on. Uh, That's just a part of Tanya Sweeney's article. Uh, Let me try and give you some other opinion from the papers. Jennifer O'Connell was writing uh, about this in the Irish Times and she said uh, if uh, there was any comfort to be gleaned from the maddening, depressing, heart-rending, infuriating sense of deja vu. It was in the strength and coherence of the response that came from women. It was very clear what we do not want to happen next. We don't want to hear you say anything at all that starts with the words not all men. We don't need any more tips about how to keep ourselves safe. We don't want even well-meaning advice on using apps or location trackers to do what make it easier to find our bodies if we're abducted and murdered. We don't want to be called love by strange men as a compliment and told to lighten up if we object. We don't want the glamorisation of high-profile men who have been accused of violence against women to stop. We don't want to have to keep telling our stories to convince the sceptics that violence against women is real and is overwhelmingly perpetrated by men. We have no more stories to tell. Women have done our part. We've been brave. We've turned our skin inside out to prove what the statistics have been showing for years. Harassment and violence against women is a real and enduring phenomenon. Women have taken the movement to end what has been called the shadow pandemic of violence as far as we can. Uh, As I say, that's uh, some of uh, the article from Jennifer O'Connell in the Irish Times, uh, which uh, also Uh, told us that a 2014 EU survey found that half of all women have been sexually harassed and one in three has experienced physical and or sexual violence. As one person put it this week, it's strange how almost every woman I know has a story of harassment or abuse, yet no man I know or any of his friends has ever been responsible. Uh, I'm sure we'll hear more thoughts similar to that over the course of the programme today, indeed over the course of the coming days for that matter. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, as you know, people from Aloud and Mead came out in their throngs over the weekend uh, to share a sense of solidarity uh, with uh, the family of Ashling Murphy and, and indeed uh, with anybody who's been affected by violence against women. There were vigils in RD, Ashburn, Navan, Bettystown, Old Castle, Drogheda, Castle Blaney, Kells, and Dundalk, and LMFM's team of reporters were on the ground to hear what people were saying. The brutal murder of Ashley Murphy has reawakened a range of emotions in each and every person in this nation. 
a range of emotions in every woman in this country for the seventh time this year as Ashley Murphy becomes the seventh woman to lose her life to murder. I think like I can relate especially as a young woman and stuff I'm quite active really here in the town I, I play rugby in Everton for an avid so I'd be out in the town quite often running and it's scary to think that like you know four o'clock in the, the evening like you're out when it's bright and this happened to this girl like it's scary to think like it could happen to you as well so I think definitely like because I relate to her and stuff and you know just the gender-based violence as well and I'm a criminology student as well so definitely just wanted to come out and show that we understand and you know, stand with her so she won't be forgotten. Like In memory of a beautiful girl, Ashton Murphy. As a girl who has been a victim of a sinister attack, stalking and harassment by a man unknown to me, hearing about Ashton has left an empty pit in my stomach. I know I was lucky to make it out of this man's hands alive, but as it's very clear to us all now, not everybody is as lucky. May you rest in peace, Ashley. I shouldn't know your name or who you are. None of us should. You have finished, you should have finished your run that day, went home and had your shower, ate your dinner and relaxed before your teaching job the next day. You deserved that. But instead you were senselessly murdered in broad daylight and now we will never forget you, Ashley Murphy. Made from Adam's rib, nine months he lay within her crib. How can a man of woman born thereafter use her sex with scorn? For though we bear the human race, to us is given but second place. And some men place us lower still by using us against our will. This senseless loss has brought you all out here this evening. So for a wee minute, I want us to think about why you've come out. The invitation from Bernadine and Outcomers provided an opportunity for you to come out and to pay your respects to the family of Ashling Murphy, to say we're thinking of you, we're praying with you at this awful time. And I believe you came out tonight to show solidarity with Ashling's family and her community. The taking of this woman's, young woman's life has ignited something the length and breadth of Ireland. People have come out in their droves to stand with the family and against the violence that took her from them. This could have happened in any Irish town or village. It could have been on the Navy Bank or the River Walk here in Dundalk. It could have been any of our sons, our sisters, our daughters, beg your pardon, our daughters, sisters, nieces, mothers, friends or colleagues. And indeed it has been other families' experience over the years. Our own community is no stranger to the violent death of women. There's a sense of helplessness and hopelessness across the country this week. If we choose to walk alone, for us there is no safety zone. If we're attacked, we bear the blame. They say that we began the game. And though you prove your injury, the judge may set the rapist free. 
Therefore, the victim is to blame. There's not a family that hasn't you know, felt the effects of this. And I suppose the testament to her and how the country is feeling is here tonight with the hundreds of people that are here. You know, she was a young girl. I'm a primary school teacher myself, so I suppose with that I can, I can, you know, resonate with me a bit more. Um, but yeah, it's just horrific. And we're just sending any solidarity and support to her family and her friends and her whole community. I come here all the time, but I'm always like weary you know when you get to a certain spot down there you're kind of looking out for women with children or somebody with a dog you know because you're just you're nervous you know i'm nearly 70 so it it, it, it kind of never never leaves you it's just you're you're not safe kind of as a woman you know you're you're always kind of saying oh who's that is that a man approaching me and you know i'm I'm, you know i'm i am the age i am but it's like it's still so it it does it does from teenagers to people to pensioners you know we all feel vulnerable we're all the people who are holding your hands and your keys in your hands and And, I mean I I know that area of Tullamore very well because I have friends there so I'm very familiar and it's a beautiful area you know you just say oh my god but now and it's it's almost like the thing that was named after Fiona Prender which is like it's like it's like it's unreal. It's like, it's very hard to get your head around that there's a woman who's gone missing and there's another girl murdered now. I just feel it's an awful thing to happen and women have to be safe and just recognise what's happened and pay our respect to her. Such a beautiful young girl, her whole life ahead of her, you know. Just shocking. People need to to stand together and teach even young boys, you know, that this isn't the way forward. Because it seems to be there is a rise in in violence against women over the last two years. So, you know, we have to teach women to be, to be, I don't know, how would you say, to be strong. Yeah. Do you know, but at the same time, I mean, she went out for a run. She yeah. didn't, mm. we should be able to go out yeah. and do whatever we want. Yeah. Mothers and fathers have to talk to their young boys and explain yeah. that this isn't on. Yeah. You know, it just can't behave like this. It just can't, has to, it just has to stop. Reclaim the night and win the day. We want the right that should be our own. A freedom women have seldom known. The right to live, the right to walk alone without fear. I play music with Nav and Coltus and uh, all the mead branches of Coltus um, and Ashling was a big member of the Coltus group um, in Ireland so just thought it was important to come down and play some, some tunes for her today and to mark the occasion, the sad occasion that it is. It's terrible what has happened Ashling, and it should never have happened, it could have, ha- it could have been anyone and that's the, that's the problem with it. Well just I suppose to pay respects to the young woman two of us are women from the town we were always out walking or running on our own and just it's 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 terrible that we don't feel safe and i hope it sends a message to everybody just to you know be wary of if you're out late at night be wary of women and and your surroundings and we're both mothers and and hopefully we can instill a sense of goodness in boys and girls the traditional irish music community are like in shock about what has happened ashling was a wonderful musician and traveled all throughout ireland and everywhere she was just a wonderful fiddle player and she will be a huge loss huge huge loss to the traditional music if you're out for a walk on your own in the evening and if you turn a corner and if you've seen a man no matter who he is your stomach your your stomach jumps and and you'd you definitely quicken your step to get to get out of sight um i know myself like i don't ever go walking in well-lit areas i know where people are around and you'd make a conscious effort to do that reclaim the night and win the day we want the right that should be our own 
we travel in, the route we take running, walking, the route we take home. Leaving the house is not so simple anymore and for many women it is a risk and a real fear. Telling women to take precautions legitimises the idea that this is acceptable, that it is acceptable for women to live in fear. If women take precautions, then there is no need to act. No need for the government to take action, the criminal justice system, the companies responsible for allowing inappropriate online abuse to take place. Something has to change for us to feel safe in the world again. We need a clear strategy to tackle gender-based violence, and this must start in the primary schools. We want our daughters to be raised in a society where all forms of violence against women no longer exists. We want our sons to be educated to ensure that this happens. Made from Adam's rib, nine months he lay within her crib. How can a man of woman born thereafter use her sex with scorn? For though we bear the human race, to us is given but second place. And some men place us lower still by using us against our will. It is not our responsibility to ensure we are not murdered or attacked. It didn't matter what time, where, or what Ashling wore, or any victim for that matter. It never matters, because victims are never to blame. We all know the fear of looking over your shoulder, calling friends in a taxi on the way home, the old too familiar, are you home safe, text, holding onto your keys in the dark as a weapon. I have two daughters myself, and you don't want them to be living in a world of fear either, that we have to show, that we have to stand up and... When we see wrong, you know, don't be afraid to say that's not nice. Or, and that has to come from primary school right up. In 1996, uh, Women's Aid started correlating figures and 244 women have lost their lives since 1996. As I said, we were involved in 87 and the early 90s in the refuge. Um, but the loss of a life, the loss of a woman's life, absolutely tragic is the extreme end of the violence. There are so many of us walking around with stories of our own um, violence, of our own assaults, of our own um, 
memories of, you know, being treated disrespectfully at the hands of men. I think it's just uh, hugely important because of all the acts of violence against women. Um, just, I don't think you'd meet any girl that doesn't know someone that's affected by this. So um, I think it's just hugely important. And I'd be part of a local Gaelic club myself. So to know that like, we'd all be out running now, especially coming into pre-season. So it just really hits home. I go to the ramparts twice, three times a week. I might not always be running, but I'll go and I have a, a tree stump that I like to just sit on and I could be there for 20 minutes, half an hour, three times a week. And that brings me so much joy, being in nature, being in fresh air, and to feel that someone now mightn't feel safe to do that anymore because of this situation. You know, it hit home and there's so many women and you know, daughters and even men too. This has affected men too because they don't want to be painted by the same brush. If we choose to walk alone For us there is no safety zone If we're attacked we bear the blame They say that we began the game Ashton's life was brutally stolen from her in broad daylight by a man while she was simply jogging in an area she felt safe. Ashton's life and the lives of 242 other women since 1996 have been taken away in brutal attacks because a man made the choice to do so. People are shell-shocked, some speechless, some vocal, some afraid, some only now hearing what it's like to be a woman in their town or village. Questions are being asked about what can be done to make the world safer for women and children. This, there is much that needs to be done but it will take all of us to make it happen. In 1994, the organization that I work for was founded out of the concern of six local women about the prevalence of violence against women and children. Since then, Women's Aid Dundalk has worked towards the goal of eliminating violence against women and their children. And last year, we worked with in excess of 1,000 individual women. I can say with confidence that there are women and children alive tonight because of the concern of those six women back in 1994. Hopelessness paralyzes people. It makes us look at the horror and magnitude of the situation and feel minuscule and impotent in the face of it. But once you choose hope, anything is possible. Tonight, as I look out at you gathered here to remember Ashling, I'd ask you in the coming days and weeks not to forget why you came out tonight, to remember the feelings that made you turn up here, and that when you hear women being put down, being made the butt of crude humour, being talked about as being more an object than a person, dig deep and call out this behaviour for what it is. It is abuse of women and girls. The barbaric killing of Ashleen, the randomness of the attack, has triggered many emotions in all of us. For anyone who is living in fear, who has experienced or is experiencing any form of violence, please know that there are services here for you. Please contact us and we will do everything we can to help. Ashley Murphy was just going for a run. Our thoughts are with Ashley's family today. Reclaim the night and win the day. We want the right that should be our own Our freedom women have seldom known The right to live The right to walk alone Without
Many of uh, the people who attended uh, the local vigils in RD, Ashburn, Navan, Bettystown, Old Castle, Drogheda, Castle Blaney, Kells, Dundalk, and uh, Dunshotland, as somebody reminded me in a text to us uh, this morning. Thanks uh, for that reminder as well. And thanks to all of those people who spoke to our team of reporters who were on the ground James McAlerney, Eamon Doyle, Sinead Brazel, and Mark O'Driscoll. And our thanks to the team for gathering all of uh, those comments for us. Uh, Very, very interesting to hear what people had to say and how people are hoping that there will be change. Uh, And on that subject, you may be interested to know uh, that uh, the Peggy Seeger song that you were listening through those comments, Reclaim the Night, was released 42 years ago when there was a problem 42 years ago it was on foot of a a movement called Reclaim the Night which was started in Leeds in 1977 44 years ago as part of uh, the Women's Liberation Movement uh, so that women could move throughout uh, the city without fear of attack it could be a problem in 44 years from now That's up to you and me, I suppose. Thanks to those of you who have been in touch with us uh, this morning. Anne in touch about the ESB bill. She says she got her first bill of the year and uh, the €100 reduction promised by the government is not gone off the bill. Uh, She was hoping to see the reduction this month, but it looks like she'll have to wait. Thanks uh, for that. Would that that not have been for electricity in December, Anne? Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I presume that uh, if you got a bill in January, it would be the November, December uh, electricity. Uh, but as I say, I'm not sure. I think it's off the electricity that you use in January. So uh, if uh, you get your bill in February or March, uh, it should be off that. Uh, but uh, I'm not sure that the details of the scheme have been published yet. I do know that that was the intention of the government. Uh, an RD listener in touch on WhatsApp about the price of antigen tests and how they are very expensive uh, depending on where you go. From place to place he says, or they say, I'm not sure if it's a man or a woman, they had to buy eight tests over the weekend. Some chemists were charging four fifty a test then in some supermarkets there were two ninety nine. Our, our listener thinks uh, that they're a huge rip-off, especially for people with large families. There should be a set price for the tests regardless of where they're sold or they should be given to households for free. Uh, Liam in touch with us about uh, the new masks and why they're being recommended to everybody now. Where were they when COVID was so deadly over the past two years? Why are they only being recommended when we appear to be hopefully getting to a better place in tackling COVID? He says uh, the point is uh, to think of how many lives may have been saved and how the infection rate could have been controlled better if these masks were recommended from the beginning. Strange to say, the least, he says. Thanks uh, for that, Liam. Uh, I think it was a question of availability and certainly at the start of the pandemic the concern was that if everybody went out and got the high grade medical masks that there wouldn't be high grade medical masks available to those who are working in the health services uh, with COVID patients in particular who would need them. Uh, Now there is uh, availability and uh, because there's enough for everybody we're all being advised to wear the best ones possible, the best ones available to us. Uh, But thanks indeed uh, for your call to the programme as well this morning. Morning, Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. 
I suppose uh, there's a, a lot of uh, people asking why is it uh, that the rules are different uh, for isolating for people who have had boosters than it is for other people. There's interesting uh, data coming uh, from Switzerland uh, which says that with Omicron the number of deaths are nine times lower in fully vaccinated people and 48 times lower after the booster uh, which is an incredible difference and some very positive news from Switzerland uh, but uh, the country was on the brink of closure before the change in rules and there was a lot of concern not just about the health service or frontline workers. Let's talk to Neil Macdonald, Chief Executive of ISME, the Irish Small and Medium Enterprises Association. Good morning to you Neil and thanks uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, people are, are at work uh, this week who uh, I gather wouldn't have been at work last week. Yes, that's correct, and we are uh, we're delighted that those rules changed because our, our service businesses, in particular, were very badly affected by the close contact rules. Um, I, I think the modification in the rules is a recognition of the fact we're at we're at, we're at a different point in the cycle of this disease now. Um, the vast majority of people are are uh, vaccinated against it, uh, uh, or have had boosters, or indeed have had the disease. So we're in a completely different part of the life cycle of COVID-19 now. Okay. Is there concern, any concern that you've been hearing of, at least in terms of the risk that the change in the rules may pose for people? No, that's not something that has been brought to our attention. I mean, the the real frustration among uh, businesses, Michael, was that, you, you know, the, we were very slow to adapt our rules to the new reality um, of, of where we were with this disease. Uh, and there is a concern at the complexity of the closed contact rules and um, also the fact that the, the, the manner in which they are described, for example, on the HSE website, as, as you alluded to there, depends on whether you're vaccinated, whether you're boosted, or whether you've had the disease. Um, now, an employer in a workplace setting, when you go into a, a, a workplace with, with colleagues, um, as, as things currently stand, we are reliant on employees to fully self-declare this because there is no uh, way for employers to, to verify this at the moment. Mm, I did hear of one employer who was asking staff to take antigen tests in his presence. Yeah, antigen testing has proven, despite the tardiness of the the NEFIT in engaging with it. And, you know, we had employers looking uh, for active programs of antigen testing since December uh, 2020. Uh, It has really proven its worth now. And I think people understand how to use it. It is difficult, of course, to use it in, in a workplace setting. Um, I, I, I do understand that employers would wish to understand the status of people who, who are at work, but it is something that has to be very carefully employed. Right. Uh, do you think uh, people have uh, been working the system as such, uh, letting on that they had COVID or a positive test? Uh, 
You sound a bit suspicious, uh, I, Neil. I, I think that that's unlikely. I don't All know right, that there okay. are some people mm. who may have done that, but I think the vast majority of people who have reported symptoms have either had COVID or they've been symptomatic of another respiratory disease. Okay. What, what about the masks? Uh, because uh, if you've no symptoms and you have a booster, you can go about your business as usual, but that's with the caveat of wearing one of these FFP2 masks. Yes, uh, and obviously we've heard that, that there's been a lot of specula- speculation that these are either going to be supplied um, free of charge by government or they're going to be subsidised. They are more expensive and harder to access than the the normal kind of light blue surgical mask that we're all now very familiar with, but of course they are far more more effective than that type of mask. Um, So I think it is likely that we're going to see pressure to use those in in working settings where social distancing is more difficult to achieve or uh, hands-on services, physiotherapy, um, hair and beauty, personal grooming, uh, dentists, doctors and that's those sorts of work settings. Mm. So has this been enough to lift that threat uh, that so many businesses were facing that they couldn't staff uh, their shops and uh, so on and that they would have to close uh, temporarily uh, for a few hours a day or quite uh, uh, extreme cases uh, they'd have to close all day in some circumstances? Well we're not out of that wood yet Michael and, and it is, I think it's going to take at least another week or so before these close contact rules work their way through and we see a sort of a, a normalised return to work um, many of our service businesses have as you say they've had to work even shorter hours than are available to some of them in, in the hospitality business uh, or, or they've decided to keep shut for you know Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday and, and confine their business to Thursday, Friday and the weekend. We, we've had all sorts of permutations of that from businesses who simply have not been able to, uh, to reopen, in, including in really important service sectors like childcare on, on which other businesses and, and, and people are hugely reliant for their ability to go to work. Yeah, of course. Uh, Neffet is to meet on Thursday uh, and uh, the world might be changing uh, again uh, but in the right direction this time uh, for people who are fed up being uh, curtailed in their movements. Uh, Leo Vratker, the Tarnasha seems to be giving us uh, reason for hope. Well, we'd we'd like to think and we assume that he is right. And I I also did note those uh, Swiss figures that you referred to earlier on, Michael. I think, you know, the issue on vaccination now is case closed. And I think we need to get that information across to people uh, in as informative uh, a manner as is possible. I mean, uh, there just isn't any more any reasoned doubt about the efficacy of uh, vaccination and the necessity that you know the vast majority of our people need uh, to get vaccinated and boosted um, but hand in hand with that we need to recognize that we're dealing with a much less um, uh, serious variant of of the disease and we really do need to start now progressively reopening our economy quite quickly because what we're actually doing is kind of socialising the, the pain among the whole economy. The, the, the multinational economy, the IT and farm and all that, of course, has done very well. But our domestic economy has really, really suffered from this semi-continuous lockdown. And we need to get out of that sooner rather than later. Okay. 
Onwards and upwards by the sounds of it uh, all going well and of course uh, there's always uh, the unknown uh, as coronavirus has taught us uh, just when you think you know where you're going with it uh, the unknown comes along and scuppers all of that uh, but uh, without uh, a new uh, virulent dangerous variant uh, it seems as though there's a, a lot of reason for hope and uh, all the more so as we go into the spring of course and uh, when the weather improves going into the summer because we'll be able to spend more time outdoors. Uh, on that subject uh, we're to have uh, another bank holiday uh, and it'll be a double St. Patrick's Day bank holiday this year which will move uh, to the 1st of February from 2023 to celebrate St. Bridget's Day. What, what are the thoughts of small and medium enterprises in relation to that? Well, of course, for for some, uh, this is you know, especially those businesses in in hospitality and catering and so on. This is you know, this is all good news. Uh, for others, it is a cost because y- your business is either going to be closed on that day or you're going to be paying uh, premium rates of pay to stay open on that day. Um, the the this has been talked about for quite a while, but in two very different context, Michael. One of them has been that this was some sort of payback to people for the pandemic and especially those in the public sector. Yet I think a lot of people in the public sector would not necessarily view this as 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 the way to do it. Um, and on the other hand there is that conversation around the number of bank holidays that Ireland has which is typically about two less than the European norm. Now, it, it, it is also the case, however, in countries with more bank holidays that we have, that where they fall on a weekend, they don't carry into the following week, whereas we do. So there are swings and roundabouts on this. But I, I think it is probably the tendency to move towards the European norm that we get an extra bank holiday. Um, you could have argued whether should this be in Q1 or should it be in Q3 or Q4. I think the commitment to have it in Q1 just recognises that perhaps the, the 1st of February is a is an interesting midway point between New Year's and and uh, the Patrick's weekend. Mm. Yeah, we'll be looking for one in April and July and September too, I think. Well, we, 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 Easter is, literally is a movable feast, of course, and then we get a May bank holiday, a June bank holiday, uh, and an August bank holiday. So, so Q1 was relatively light in that regard. Mm. A, a lot of hospitality and tourism businesses would probably have welcomed one in, in the third quarter in the summer. But I, I think in many ways it is useful having a bank holiday outside the shoulder periods you know the, the Ireland typically has a relatively short tourist season so adding a holiday outside that season is probably beneficial for a lot of hospitality business is it worth talking to you about a four day week um, the, the four-day week, of course, has, has a lot of currency in a lot of areas. What we would say there is it really does depend on the type of business you're talking about. A lot of manufacturing businesses can, through efficiency, they you know they can do five days production in four days. That that is achievable. In other sectors, and we, we've just been talking about them in, in medical uh, in, in medical circles, in childcare, nursing homes, and so on. If you go from a five-day to a four-day week, what you've effectively done is is you've reduced your service capacity by 20%. So the the only way you meet that is to pay it in either premium time or with new employees. So a four-day week 
uh, is very much dependent on what type of service or, or manufacturing or working sector you're talking about. Okay, but that's something that you would dismiss. Well, well I, I, I don't think it would be fair to dismiss it mm. out of hand. There are sectors, of course, where it will work really well. Mm. And I think employers in, in the seller's market for labour that we have now, employers are very happy to consider that. But in, in service sectors where your business is done at the point of service delivery, like, like uh, grooming services, like nursing homes, like a doctor's surgery or dentist surgery, you, you have to frame that four-day week debate in terms of how how long you, you're going to be able to offer the service on a weekly mm. basis. Yeah, well, that's it. We all want the services seven days a week, and uh, I suppose a lot of us would like to have a few days off as well. Precisely. Okay, Neil, we leave it there. Thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us. Neil MacDonald, Chief Executive of the Irish Small and Medium Enterprises Association. That's ISME. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. I think a quote of uh, the day today has to go uh, to Jim Clarkin, who's uh, the Chief Executive Officer of Oxfam. He told the Irish Independent, billionaires have had a terrific pandemic. Let's uh, speak uh, to Jim Clarkin. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, you made your comments uh, on foot of uh, the publication of a report called Inequality Kills. But maybe you'd explain to us why the pandemic has been so terrific for billionaires. Good morning, Michael. It is it is almost funny if it wasn't so serious. Um, yeah, well, the, the 10... We've done a study of billionaires across the world. The 10 rich, richest men in the world, and they are all men, uh, their their wealth actually more than doubled over the last uh, two years or less, uh, and the Irish billionaires again, all men, uh, their their wealth uh, dramatically increased by about fifty eight percent. So there's a soaring level of wealth that is is continually moving to the top, if you like, to the wealthiest, uh, and yet ninety nine percent of the world are are worse off because of COVID. Nice. So this this inequality, you know, we've been we've been charting it for a few years, and you've been good enough to to talk about it in the past. But it's got to obscene levels now, and we know that, you know, this this isn't sustainable. We we need to make a change here. I mean, they, we we've we know that across the world, 160 million people have been driven into extreme poverty. That's on top of the billions that were already there. We know that this inequality kills 21,000 people every day due to a lack of access to healthcare, due to hunger, due to other crises. And we even know in Ireland that, uh, according to the Social Justice Ireland. Uh, 19% of our population are pushed into are below the poverty line. So this inequality is killing. It's having a hugely detrimental effect, and it is having a massive impact on women. Uh, women have lost 800 billion dollars in global earnings across the world. Um, the you know tw- we know that there are 20 million girls who you know left school when the schools closed across the world that will not return to school, and the impact for them and for for their lives is is enormous. There's been more care work as a result of the pandemic. Again, the vast majority of care work is carried out by women. And the really devastating piece that we're, we're all too well aware of in this country is the soaring violence against women and girls, which has is, which is dramatically increased during the pandemic. Mm. Yet, yet 0.0002%, if you can get your head around that mm. number, of pandemic response was spent on protecting women and girls. So we have, we have a big inequality gap that's continuing to stretch and and it's getting much worse and we need to do something about it dramatically and there are solutions Mm. so what we're saying is that it's now time to seriously look at a wealth tax 
across the world for those multimillionaires and billionaires in order for them to contribute to the recovery and to contribute to a fair society which they ultimately benefit from. Uh, A very modest tax in Ireland alone could bring in as much as four billion which could be invested in healthcare, could be invested in housing and, and protection here that's, that's very badly needed. So That's a 1.5% wealth tax on people uh, who have wealth of more than 4 million. That's right, yeah, that's right. So there's, there's, it's a very small percentage of the Irish population, about 0.3%, um, and it's only right that those people who many would have gained dramatically because of the crisis um, should contribute to... to to the recovery. And you'd raise four billion uh, through yeah. that. that. That's an yeah. awful lot of money and you could do an awful lot with that. Uh, the figures are staggering. Uh, some of uh, the figures uh, would melt your brain looking at them, uh, especially when you consider the level of poverty that there is in the world and how I think a, a huge portion of the population, let's say in Afghanistan, uh, will uh, suffer from hunger this year. And that story replicated in many parts of the world. But the 10 richest men in the world that you spoke of have wealth now that's valued at 1.3 trillion euro. It's hard to even imagine what that is. The nine men who are billionaires in this country uh, two years ago uh, were worth about 32 billion between them. Two years on, that's increased by about 18 billion. And now the nine men are worth about 50 billion. The mind, the mind boggles. Yeah. And, the, and the truth of it is, all this money uh, doesn't benefit society. It, and, and in fact, you know, if you're a billionaire, whether you have 10 billion or 11 billion or 12, does it really make that much of a difference to you? You know, you, you, never, you can never spend it all anyway. So, you know, it's, it's money that's not only is it, is it wrong, it's, less, it's mm-hmm. wasted money. It's just sitting there accumulating and accumulating because of, you know, because of the way their investments are, are, are structured. So, you know, we, we need to put this money to good use and we need to, to, to look at, at liberating it to, in order to, for it to be, to be um, invested in society. And, and I mean, even there are some millionaires out there who believe that this is the right thing to do. It's the structures that are currently in place are, you know, aren't, aren't there. But it does need to be something that's, that's very firmly rooted in a taxation, in a taxation that's agreed, that's well-designed, that's well-structured, and then obviously that is contributing in the right way to to reducing this inequality and particularly helping those who are at the at the most vulnerable end of the scale. Thanks. Uh, we're living through a pandemic. Uh, could a wealth tax, a global wealth tax, along the lines of what you're suggesting, help bring about an end to that pandemic to vaccinate uh, the world's poorest? Well, the, we estimate that the just just the increase in wealth from those wealthiest people in itself could pay for could pay for uh, um, vaccines for everybody. It could it could have a, a massive impact on on healthcare provision in in eighty percent in eighty countries across the world. These, these are talking about huge huge numbers here, but I mean it's it's important to remember too that part of the inequality is driven by structures that that are are wrong. I mean we know that billions of people across the world are not being vaccinated because they don't have access to the vaccines. The reason being that the the vaccine uh, intellectual property is held in a monopoly way by a small number of companies and we've been lobbying to try and get Ireland and the EU to to support what's called the TRIPS waiver, this waiver to allow that intellectual property be sh- to be shared so that we could produce massive amounts of vaccines so they could be distributed quickly. I mean, it's mm-hmm. that is one of the gross injustices of this, this period that we have watched, uh, the world has watched while billions of people uh, have, have no access to vaccines. 
In fact, the report shows that uh, where you live is more indicative than your age, even though the the Mm. perception is that the the disease has killed older people and it has tragically killed lots of older people. But across the world, if you're in a poor country, it's actually where you live is going to be the indicator of whether you live or die. And that's before you talk about all of the other problems associated with poverty uh, and uh, the Oxfam report, inequality kills, uh, no doubt will give uh, food for thought for the world's elite when they gather in Davos uh, for the World Economic Forum. That's it. And and look, you know, the... There is, there is an opportunity. I mean, they, we, it's not just Oxfam saying this. It's the World Bank. It's the IMF. It's the, it's the, it's the, um, the World Economic Forum itself has identified that this, you know, obscene levels of inequality are not sustainable. They're not, they're, they're not you know, they damage society. They damage democracies. They damage social cohesion, you know, and people won't tolerate them. And then that could lead to, you know, very, you know, all kinds of political outcomes and all kinds of problems and conflict and so on. So mm. it is a it is a global issue that needs to be addressed and we in Ireland can do something about it too. Jim Clarkin, Chief Executive of Oxfam Ireland, thank you indeed for joining us. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.